Byer here, welcoming you to Season 3. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Saturday, November 28th, 2020. Although I think it will be 2021 when this airs. And I have the most amazing guest on the line. You are going to love her. She sent me two of her books one is called Travel and Error, Over 700 Organic Remedies, Shortcuts, and Tips for the Gardener. I had just been pouring through it this morning because it's got the most beautiful little watercolor illustrations to go with it all. It's like a book after my own heart. And the other one is called Camp Granny, 130 green projects, including firefly lanterns, worm hotels, pizza box, solar oven, Fairy houses, memory boxes, peekaboo planters, and then she has like a whole bunch of other books. You guys are just gonna love her, and I'll be quiet from here on out. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Jackie. Yay! <laughs> so yeah, I told my husband I'm so excited to talk to her. Uh, well, go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm lucky enough to be able to not only garden every day of my life when I'm in California, because I do live on an island in Maine part of the year, but um, I get to earn a living writing and illustrating and talking to children. Actually, probably one of my most popular books is Root Shoots, Buckets and Boots, and it's all about gardening with children, and that's sort of been a, a passion of mine my whole life because I was introduced to the garden by my grandmother and taken outside when I was quite young and learned that you don't work in a garden, you play in a garden. And I took my son out into the garden when he was 10 days old. And I would run his fingers over the peppermint geranium or um, the artemisia and let him smell his fingers. And I, he is now a fantastic gardener. So my life has been in a garden and around a garden and this is just, you know, it's my life. So I'm very, very fortunate. Love that. Don't work in a garden, play in a garden. But it's yes, just because there's so many memories I that came back to me looking at your book and thinking about my mom and my nieces in the garden with her. And when I was a kid in the garden with like, there's just, I just love so much of it. Oh, that's great. Well, I, um, I think that when we give people the gift of the love of gardening, it is a lifelong gift. And even people who are in um, some kind of assisted living, I think they need gardens. They need container gardens. They need a patio where they can go out and smell the plants and see the hummingbirds. And that's sort of been my lifelong thing is promoting this and hoping that we can touch as many lives as possible. And especially starting with the very young, but it's never too young to be a gardener. Never too old to be a gardener either. <laughs> no, I was just, Andrew Mefford wrote a book and there's a picture in there of this, you know, um, young new farmer and he's got his baby strapped on his back while he's down digging. I don't know if he's planting seeds or weeding or whatever, but super sweet. Yeah, that's, that's, what, one of the I, things- that's what I did. That's what I did. You know, I had Noah strapped to my back or my front and that was it. I'd go back up to a plant and it's they're they're enveloped by the garden and it becomes a part of them just like it's a part of you as a grown-up so absolutely so you're in california but did you say you go to maine in the winter or oh in the no summer? <laughs> in the summer yes um we've had a place on an island in maine for 20 
it'll be 26 years. And in fact, I wrote a book called The Little Green Island with a Little Red House about our place there with all the animals that come to our house, like the porcupines and the possums and the raccoons and everything. And um, it, it influences our life in really positive ways. The people are fabulous. The land is so beautiful. The food is so good. The art is so wonderful. Yes, we we're very fortunate to be able to go back to Maine. But I do come, uh, I'm there different times during the year. And then I have to be back in my garden here in California so that I can garden during the winter. I'm already planting, seeding things out. Jeff just built me a new little greenhouse. And I, um, you know, I gardening is in my soul just as my family is. And this is where my family is as well so I have to return but it I always cry when I get to Maine and I always cry when I leave it's so hard (laughs) oh gosh that's like I am actually kind of working on a book about Maine right now my husband and I are looking at buying a farm in Maine two years ago is it two years ago now or last year and um and so I kind of am turning it into like this story about like, since we didn't buy it, like what would happen if we did buy it? So I've been doing all this research on Maine and just, uh, yeah, we, we found like, my husband was like, look up farms in Maine. And wouldn't you know, the first one I look at, it's 175 acres. It comes with two farmhouses, 14 irrigated acres, a trail pond, a uh, <laughs> an orchard like it was just like i was like oh my gosh it was so perfect we actually really thought about buying it so i'm like well, making up the story about what would have happened if we had bought it well jackie you know the maine organic farmers and gardeners association is huge in yeah. maine and of course we have elliot coleman and we have uh we had the nearings who started the sort of the back to the land movement but we have a very active farming community and farmers markets and actually jeff and i were so thrilled when we first moved to the island we had a market boat from an organic farmer and he came to to our cove every friday at a certain time and sold right out of the market boat like you'd get from a regular farmer's market there are the neatest people who are involved in farming and gardening in maine very vital vital community of people and i think you'd love it oh well that was part of why we were thinking about moving there like he was like well i heard they have all sorts of progressive politics and he liked the governor and he said that they were working on going what was it like carbon free by 2030 like yeah they all had a plan and well they're even though they have a deep history they're forward thinking and they're forward thinking not just with the soil and with marketing and with their restaurants and but they're forward thinking about the native americans and about uh politics and about yes about carbon emissions and it's a pretty amazing place yeah i just interviewed daniel my gosh is it maze from frith farm who's in southern maine and he's been there i think six years or nine years now and he talked a lot about um it's mafka right the mean yes it is garden yeah so and somebody out like one of my first listeners was from there and it just uh it just seemed too good to be true well you have to come back and i'll have to tell you come back when common ground is going on in maine because it's a hoot (laughs) What? It is common. You look up common ground. It is the best 
country fair, organic country fair that you will ever attend. Hundreds and hundreds of vendors, the most incredible produce that's, you know, how regular fairs are, but these are all organic things. It's put on by Mafka and just um, thousands and thousands of people attend. It is so wonderful. It usually happens last week in September. This year, of course, it didn't come um, because of COVID. It was not a happening thing, but Mafka is quite, quite organized and quite good, and you should join it because it's a wonderful group. And I think that, um, you know, since there wasn't one this year, I think when these things, when we get to go back to going to conferences, people are going to be ready to travel and go places, and it's going to be way fun. Well, we we also have the Maine Grain Alliance, where people have started growing grains again, organic grains, and Maine Grain Alliance has a huge conference, too. So um, you sound like someone who would fit right in, and I invite you to come and drop by and visit us. Aww. All right. Well, you never know. I didn't actually go to Maine. <laughs> I haven't been to Maine since I was like in, I don't know, when we were little kids, my parents took us up to a place in Bar Harbor, which is still like, I can still remember it. Like it was such a great vacation that we got to go. Like we were only there for like two nights, but it was so wonderful. We it is wonderful. It's one of our favorite <laughs> vacations. And, it is uh, wonderful. But you never know. We might. I might get there yet. So thanks for the invitation. That's so exciting. So Sharon, did you tell us about your very first garden? Like I know you talked about learning with your grandma, but like I kind of always start the show asking about like who were you with? What'd you grow? It sounds well, like you were a I, kid. I was really young, and um, my grandmother had an incredible garden. I I lived in a tiny cottage. Uh, in the corner of her garden under apricot and peach trees. And she was a botanist and a horticulturist. So I, I, you know, I was destined to do what I'm doing right now. And my first gardening experiences and probably the reason I love gardening and containers so much is that I grew things in old uh, Ben-Hur coffee cans and, um, uh, soup cans and we'd poke a hole in the bottom and I'd plant seeds. So in Camp Granny, I think you probably saw my garbage gardens. And that was really inspired by what I did with my grandmother Lovejoy, my first gardening, growing things from seed and learning about the circle of life and the, the magic and vitality of life and everything that's growing. So I would say that I'm right now I have hundreds of, um, potted plants, container gardens, terracotta pots. And I think that all started in those bitter coffee cans. Well, speaking of terracotta plants, I can't wait to try that like little trick with the two terracotta pots, like stacked up one on top of the other, the ones upside down. And oh, yes. Put the thing to get the hose guide. Because yep, we have that. so many of these crazy little corners and things that I'm always tugging the hoses around. So I can't wait to try that next well, summer. We, um, poor, my poor husband, Jeff and my family, you know, I, I scientifically did trial and error and it took me many, it took a lifetime to write it actually. It's a result of a lifetime of gardening. There and what are I, so many tips in there. Well, and I, and I tried them all out or Jeff tried them out <laughs> and we both tried them out. And 
what I did was I scientifically researched things. I went to the Biointegral Resource Center, Texas A&M, Florida State, um, Cornell, UC Davis, and I'd go to their, I'd look at papers and then I'd go back to their papers that they base things on. So I did a lot of deep digging, which sounds corny since I'm a gardener. But um, when I turned in my manuscript for trial and error to work <laughs> to my editor at Workman Publishing, she said, good grief, Sharon. You've got 458 pages here. You're giving people a seven-course meal, and what they really want is the hors d'oeuvres. So what you're reading are the distillation or the reduction of long, long, long bits of scientific probing into little hors d'oeuvre-sized bites that anybody can do and anybody can read. And, you know, it's um, – I want gardening to be not only fun but easy. And, yes, you have days when you go out and you put in your sweat equity – but compared to other things, what could give you more rewards than a garden? Absolutely. And your illustrations are just so darling. So I'm a watercolor artist too. So I, I oh, that's just, just so touched by everything in there and the way you did it. I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to treasure this book forever. It's going right well, on my art desk. Well, Jackie, <laughs> it's not going the, on the garden shelf. <laughs> it's going right reason, next to my bed. <laughs> the reason it looks the way it does is when I first, um, well, Roots, Shoots, Buckets and Boots was my first book with Workman and it almost killed me. It was one of the hardest books I've written. And the reason you didn't get a copy of it is it's gone back to print for about the 16th printing, which is kind of amazing to me. But um, I, they took my, I sent them my garden journal. I love keeping a garden journal and they sort of went crazy for it and they loved all the little tips and I had written an article for my gardening column in Country Living Gardener, which is a, was a Hearst publication, quite a wonderful gardening magazine. And my Helpful Hints column got so many responses that I just knew that I needed to write this as a book. And so they took my journal apart. And a lot of the illustrations are directly from my journal. Well, your journal is a lot prettier than my journal. <laughs> <laughs> but um but it's just it's just precious huh Thank well you. i'm i think i the invoice said i think they are gonna send a copy of root shoots buckets and boots when they will so, and it's so important so because there it's so important because i want people to get their children out in the garden that's that's really important for our future for our future on this planet so yeah it's it's important to me did I go totally off? Did I go off the planet when I started answering your questions? <laughs> no. And that's what okay. my listeners love. They want to hear <laughs> all about um, your story and things. And just, I'm an elementary educator by trade. So oh, good. I'm very passionate oh, good. about the kids in the garden. And I've worked with a lot of kids who don't get enough recess and don't get enough time outside. And, right, you know, right. the, there's so many lessons you can do in the garden and just, it's so good for their souls. And just, you can feel like the kids who have ADHD, just calm down out there. Yes. And, oh, it's, it's so beneficial. So yeah, we're, we're big, um, big fans of that. So oh, that's great. Do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year? So do you, garden in maine and in california they have to be two completely different are they completely different like oh yes well first of all when i when i first started going to maine 
I had about 200 container gardens on my, in fact, Jeff can send you pictures of them. I had about 200 containers on my porch steps, uh, in window boxes and on the ground. And so we would spend the first few weeks there planting and, and everything. And yeah, I, I was able to harvest my lettuces and my kale and, and all my herbs and everything. But the truth is, I fell madly in love with all the natives there. I fell in love with my pink lady slippers, with with the bayberries and my big patch of blueberries. And I started thinking, how can I change? Because we're just a few feet from the ocean. How can I change this perfect landscape, which is perfectly adapted to the natives that are growing here? How dare I introduce these things that don't belong here? So I've always been a native plant gardener, always. I uh, I've always loved natives and was trained in some classes at the Santa Barbara Botanic Gardens. But so slowly but surely, I gave our friend Jean Banks some of my pots and I gave other people pots and I just started pulling back because I wanted to spend more time with the natives. And that's what I've been doing. And the reward is that you see butterflies and moths and critters that you never would see when you really zero in on native plants. And no, I, that's, that's what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm a, very much a critter gardener and I love them. And you probably saw that in trial and error. And I ended up giving away everything that had to do with gardening on my porch and on, you know, on our property and devoting myself to the natives that grow there. And it's very rewarding. And you know, I'm not a farmer, I'm a gardener, and I'm also a, a native plant gardener, so that's what I've devoted myself to there, and I'm a watcher. I love watching what's going on in the garden, so that that's the story. I mean, you know, if you, when I think back on how I started gardening organically, I think my, my nanny Clark and my grandfather were the ones that first got me organic gardening, um, they they kept what was called a well it was a half gallon cardboard carton on their kitchen in their kitchen sink and every bit of garbage went into it and that's what we did in Maine too we did that for all our plants we had one see. of those too yeah like in your compost right not yeah like but, it, but like your food scraps it, all our food scraps yes all our food scraps went in it and then everything was dumped out under the avocado tree in a possibility pile. And it had all the grass clipping and all the avocado skins and all everything. So that started me. And that carried through even in Maine. We actually traveled back to Maine with our vermicomposting bucket one year. And because I'm a big vermicomposter. <laughs> I and, love that. You know, I think it all started in my grand, my Nani and Boppy's kitchen and in their backyard, a small backyard. But it started me gardening organically. And once... I saw that a neighbor put out snarl. I'll probably, will I get sued for this, for saying this, but snarl, um, they're like little pellets or something. And I saw a bird eat them. And then, mm. and, and I thought I will never use a pesticide in my garden. I will never use that kind of allure and that, you know, that kind of bait. And we do everything organically here. And we have not a huge yard. But we have 71 fruit trees, or 72, many of them in giant terracotta pots. And 
uh, we grow so many things and we do not, we don't use a lick of any pesticide on anything. Kind of weird word to use a lick, <laughs> but we don't use pesticides on anything. It's kind of a good word. Cause you think like the insects lick it and then they die, yeah. which yeah. is so sad. Uh, what kind of fruit 71 fruit trees and, and they're in pots well, not all of them are. The, f- the first thing I planted when we moved here was a pomegranate. And so now we have two pomegranates that are about 10 or 12 feet high. And they produce dozens and dozens of pomegranates. And I became a master food preserver this year. And so I was busily preserving everything I could. And I en- ended up having to call in the troops from my master food preserving class to come and harvest things because I couldn't keep up with everything. And I don't, I need a freestanding um, a freezer in our garage which is full of all Jeff's woodworking tools but I need a freestanding freezer so I spent um, many hundreds of hours this summer preserving things from strawberry strawberry guavas uh, lemon guavas feijoas which are pineapple guavas lemons limes Mexican limes Bruce's seedless limes Valencia oranges Meyer lemons lemons um, uh, Fuji apples, Pink Lady apples. I could, I mean, I could go on and on. And how do you um, preserve lemons, or, or do you preserve them too? Or are you just talking about the what you have? Well, preserving the lemons, you do it. I do it the Moroccan way with salt, and you can get that recipe anywhere. Uh, and I preserve the peels. And what I found, especially with my Meyer lemon peels, is I zest the lemons, and then I put them in a slow and low oven. And as they bake on the slow and low, very slow oven, they almost, they smell like vanilla. So I use them as a flavoring. It's just an amazing process. Um, and then I freeze the lemons and I, uh, I freeze the lemon juice actually. And yeah, there's, there are just gazillions of ways. So easy to preserve is a wonderful book. It'll teach you about preserving and um, some, I think it's Georgia state has a great book on preserving. I use that and, there are just so many ways. And I also do, um, we have a solar oven and I solar dry many things like the tomatoes because we grow many tomatoes and I solar dry things on hot days in our garden. And then I use a snack master of uh, dehydrator as well. So it's a, it's like a laboratory around here, <laughs> oh, but it's fun. It's a joy to anyone who loves to, to grow their own things. Oh, and I grow plums and pr- and uh, peaches and nectarines and pears and, you know, many, many, many things. I do have a plethora of pineapple guavas because I grew up with those in my grandmother's garden. And so I have about 10 of those. So out of our 71, 10 of them are pineapple guavas, pichoas. Okay. And I guess I, I mean, we're talking, this is in California, right? <laughs> yeah where the 71 yeah. trees are because yeah. i was thinking we were still in maine and and then i was like oh you're growing <laughs> pomegranates in maine i wonder if i can grow a pomegranate here in montana then you'd be surprised what you could grow in a greenhouse my friend shane smith was the i think he was the head of the uh, cheyenne wyoming botanic garden and he had that humongous greenhouse that had the wall of big barrels of water that that passively absorbed the sun and it he grew everything in there. So you should look up Shane Smith's uh, greenhouse gardening book. He's fabulous. And you should talk to him too. 
right. You could- Those Wyoming folks. I talked to this guy <laughs> from there, Nate Story, who who grows a lot of um, like aquaponics type uh-huh, of things. I love that. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. Down in Wyoming. So they're they're pretty innovative. Well, Shane has retired and moved, but he's written a wonderful book about greenhouse gardening. And, you know, really uh, those white pop-up tent gardens, those hoops and greenhouses, you can grow so much. So when Jeff was lobbying me to grow, to move to Maine, which I can't do, I can't leave, I can't leave my grandchildren and my son. And when he was lobbying me, he kept saying greenhouse, greenhouse, because I worked, um, I was the great American gardener at Disney World Epcot Center. And I learned about about the aquaponics and hydroponics. And um, I thought, wow, that is really a wonderful thing to do and to aim for in the future when, you know, we need to, we need to use our everything wisely. And it really taught me a lot about how, how much you can grow in a greenhouse and in a, in a hoop house and ah, fantastic. That would have, I'll listen to the interview you did with him. It's so weird. Whenever I talk to the aquaponics people, I always have these visions of grocery stores with these like underground canals of fish, like swimming (laughs) from grocery store to grocery store, like all these like connected. And like, I envision (laughs) the people in the grocery store are going to be like, you're going to like go up, like as if you were going to the fish counter and then you'll be like, I want to have a lettuce. And they're going to like cut the lettuce off right for you right there in the store. Like, I don't know good. But that sounds like something you would see at Disney Epcot. Wow, you have had just the most amazing life. It's just so fascinating uh, working at Disney Epcot. Well, I didn't work there. They chose me as the great American gardener and flew us down there. And I taught classes. They used to have a wonderful learning center. And I taught classes and gave lectures and did some recordings and things. Uh, and did some TV shows down there too. But Um, It was just so neat to go behind the scenes and see how Disney does everything. They are really good gardeners. I do love what they're doing with hydroponics, aquaponics. So, and I could just see that that's a hilarious cartoon in my brain of what you just said about the underground, uh, the fish and the lettuce and everything. (laughs) Well, I just have like this, I am like the kind of person that can't keep uh, like, I hate fish tanks. Like to me, to put a fish in a fish tank is like making me spend my life in my bathroom and never getting out. Like I just, fish they don't know, maybe they don't care, but to me, so I'm like, all right, if you're going to have fish in this system, they have to be able to like go for long ways. And like, (laughs) I don't know. I know what you mean. They need to be free ranging fish. <laughs> so if they can't be free ranging fish, at least they can go from like store to grocery store to grocery store in these little underground right. tunnels. Right. Uh, and plus their poop fertilizes all those things. So that's a good thing. I like your idea. <laughs> well, that's, that's the whole thing of aquaponics, right? Is yeah, that the that's fit, right. They're, they're getting their food from the fish. That's right. That's so, right. It was so funny. Cause you know where I met that guy? I met this guy that was working for him in Paris. I was like in Paris and I went to this agriculture affair the first person i meet is this guy who's working for the guy back in wyoming pretty funny (laughs) of all places so i will definitely look up shane smith yeah he's what i think uh he's a wonderful guy he's a really a knowledgeable gardener awesome is there is there something you're excited to do next year or something different (laughs) or new you're gonna try it sounds like you've probably been doing this for a while but you know i i love uh 
Shepherd Seeds and Decora, Iowa, the Seed Savers Exchange and Baker Creek Heirlooms. And I just got some catalogs and I'm turning the pages right now. Last year, I grew some of those little mini Mexican cucumbers. They're adorable uh, for pickling. And uh, I'm going to be growing more of those. I love to grow gourds. I love to grow different beans. And so I am just going through the catalogs right now. I grew, um, you know, of course, Scarlet Runner and Painted Lady and Hyacinth Beans and some other ones last year. But I'm going to grow more. And what I do is I grow fava beans, too. And then I grow them in pots and I cut them back when they're finished. And, of course, they put nitrogen back into the soil. So they're they're doing double duty for me. They're preser- They're giving me all those wonderful beans, but they're also enriching my soil. I like that kind of companionability of these plants. And um, I, I always try to grow rare fruits. I, I love the California Rare Fruit Growers Exchange because I, I got some uh, grapes from them and they're, con- they're Pismo Concords. And they're the most fabulous grapes I've ever tasted. So I'm gonna grow a few more varieties of grapes and then I also grow wild grapes, but there are, um, I spent $145 on seeds last year. Now, to me, that's a lot of money. Uh, I will say that the ground squirrels did get to harvest a lot of produce from that, but I usually try to not spend over $200 on seeds because you find that you don't, you don't plant as many as you should. You know, some of them will languish in your potting shed. How big uh, is your place? it's not that big. It's 10,000 square feet. And, um, I had a a permaculturist come a food forest guy. And he said, this is the smallest food forest I've ever seen. And it's the most productive. I think it is like you, you would ask a, a, a client, you know, what did you, um, what did you have the best luck growing this year? Well, everything, you know, everything grew well. Uh, in fact, I couldn't control it. So, it's we have intense gardening here in every inch and the other day I picked up a garden sculpture and I went oh my gosh look here's actually 12 inches I don't have to weed and Jeff looked at me and he said you've created this love joy this is your monster (laughs) so yeah I believe in intensive gardening you know mother earth doesn't usually leave um, fertile ground bare (laughs) And I like to think of myself as a redheaded mother, mother earth. <laughs> oh, Sharon, I could talk to you all day. This is so fun. Um, I do have, like people ask me about food forests and like my golden listener of 2020 is working on planting a food forest in her yard. So like, can you give us some tips about what's working well, or maybe something not to try or just like, I don't know. <laughs> Well, um, I think Sally Cunningham wrote a book on uh, Great Garden Companions, and that's a good book to look into. It's an old book. It's probably 20 years old now, but there are some things that just don't get along. But I have to say, you have to go out into your garden every day. I go out every morning, and I see how these marriages are working. Sometimes you need to have a divorce in there. Sometimes things just don't do well. Um, I planted, uh, I have semi-raised beds. Um, you know, I had a, a business, a garden and nursery business for 22 years. So I had a lot of time to, to try things out. And I love raised beds. 
um, and I love containers. And I go out every day to see what is working and what is not working. In the center of each of my big beds, I planted a fruit tree. And at the base of them, I planted natives that attract uh, beneficial insects. And they're not, they're not pushy natives that are going to take over the ground. And I keep them in check, too. And then around them, I also plant uh, alliums. I plant, you know, shallots and, and garlic. In fact, that's what I'm going to buy today are my, my bulbs. And um, I really intensely plant with herbs. I like to, besides using natives, I really like to push on things that are edible, and that includes herbs. So, And I have to say that my food forest includes every inch, every crack on the, on my courtyard patio. It has a rail growing in it and fennel and you name it. So I intensely plant, I, I nosily watch every day. I make sure that things are doing well, that they like each other, that they don't need to get a divorce or get moved out. And um, I just tell people to, that think of your garden as a big palette and you're painting it all these different colors, and some of those colors will go well, and some won't. And believe me, I, I helped design the Red Butte Botanic Garden in Utah and Cleveland uh, Children's Garden and the Red Butte Children's Garden. Um, I'm no designer. I'm a, I'm an, I like to do innovative things with plants. And I like to know what they like and where they flourish. So I advise people to read up on, on food forests, but I also advise them to follow their hearts because even when you do things wrong, the garden is very forgiving. I remember when I planted my first ranunculus, I planted every single one of them upside down <laughs> and they all grew. But I loved them. You know, I went out every day and talked to them. And that's what I tell people to do with their with their their food gardens or with any gardens. Love your plants and they'll love you back. I don't believe in I don't believe in black thumbs. That's just a fallacy. I have two questions for you. (laughs) Okay. One, what's a sign that something should be married and something should be divorced? How do you know two plants like the problem is that it's next to the wrong plant? Oh, I, I can tell. Oh, you, you have to know your garden. You have to know every inch of your garden. Like right now I have a problem area that I have to tackle, but I know where everything grows in my garden and I know how everything is either happily growing together or not. And when they're not, you can see them languishing. You can see them curling and turning colors and getting smaller instead of getting larger. Um, it's just reading your plants. It's reading your garden. Well, it's knowing your garden and loving your garden. So you learn when something needs to be moved. You just know that that, that plant has to be moved. Whoops. <laughs> Sounds like something exciting is going on here. <laughs> Do you have to cut that? No, my show yeah. is pretty, <laughs> I'm just a one girl, like, do this, usually I have a full-time job, I'm really teaching, well. and so I don't have, you know, I do all the editing myself, up until this year, I've typed, I've, like, transcribed by hand all the oh, show whoa. notes, but... I found a transcribing service that was like incredibly affordable. Like, well, I didn't want you to think they were raiding my house and that's why all the sirens were going (laughs) up. 
Well, I always like that sound to me always makes me think ambulance. And I just always say a quiet little yeah. prayer for whoever's in the ambulance and whoever's family. Exactly. Is exactly. To me, that's what always scares me. So I'm glad Thank you're you. safe. Uh, and then my other question, I don't know, do you grow irises? Maybe more in Maine than in... No, um, I grow native irises, California natives. I, uh, my grandmother was a member of the iris club. She had incredible iris. I grow orris root, um, but I am turning more and more to native iris. So, and they are um, naturalizing under my lemon and lime and, and uh, tangerine. So uh, if you want to talk about native irises, I'm doing fine, but I don't, I don't grow the old, you know, the old fashioned ones. Well, I just want to know if you have any tip, like, so a couple of years ago, I transplanted my irises and they are not blooming. And this was their second year. And like, I, I broke them up into all these different beds because they look so crowded. I swear they were screaming at me. We're too crowded. We need You're more right. room. So You're I right. gave them all this room. And now they're not like one bloomed in each new bed. Well, last year, the first year, nothing bloomed. And last year, I'm just like wondering, is there... Do you have any? Yeah, I'm in. They're pretty native, I think, be, to my area, because we got them from somebody else's garden, like some local dug them. Well, up. you might have gotten naturalized ones, but not native ones. But let me let me yeah, let me give you a, a hint. When you move to a new new okay. neighborhood, the first few months you're alone, right? And then pretty soon you start meeting people and maybe trading a plant or a pie over the back fence. Well, your irises are just getting set into their new area. And you gave them room. You read them. You did exactly what I said I do every day. I go out and I talk to my plants. In fact, one of my favorite quotes in the world is, I like to go out on a walk and with each plant and garden talk. That's from John Ray's poem, Flora, Ceres, and Pomona. It was written in the 1600s. So you did what John Ray tells us to do, go out and talk to your garden. You saw that they were crowded. They, they get their shoulders up out of the ground and they look all knobby and gnarly. Yeah. You split them. You, I hope, gave them some top dressing of some good um, mulch. Mm-hmm. And you set them free. And the first year, they're, they're just barely getting their wings. But probably this year, you're going to be surprised. You know, they, they have to get settled into their new home. And you have to also top dress them and give them a little love. Okay. So- and you get, to be, you get to be an eccentric gardener because that's the joy of being a a real down-to-earth gardener. You get to be eccentric and nobody can slap you down for that. So just go out and talk to them and give them a little uh, mulch. You know, I'm not big at feeding plants. I'm big at, big on feeding the soil. And I'm wondering where I put, now that you've, you've got me super curious, where I put them, they're kind of all alone in grass as compared to they were over my herb bed. And I'm wondering, like, should I maybe dig up that, like there's two beds and there's a strip of grass in between them. And then they're surrounded by grass. They're kind of like in this area that I thought, Oh, let's put them over on this hill. There's there. They are kind of close to these daylilies, but I'm wondering. Those if, like, are pushy. Should Those I are pretty put pushy. them in between? Like, should I put some herbs or something in between them? Do they, are they lonely? I would let, I would let them, um, I go another year, you know, the part of, our biggest crop that we have to harvest as gardeners is patience. We have to be patient. So you need to watch them. And I would think that they'd be happy to have their own space to, you know, send up their banners of bloom. 
I, I can't imagine that they'd be unhappy with that unless they're not getting any water, unless they're not getting enough sunshine. Um, but you, you have to read them and just watch and see. And they're so portable, you know, big deal. If they don't do well this year, you'll dig them up and move them somewhere else. Oh. And I, you know, I do like to put herbs um, around things. I love ladies' mantle. And um, I love the way those ladies' mantle capes of leaves look with the spears of iris. They look beautiful. But I am not a garden designer. Um, I have a friend um, who has a wonderful blog called Harmony in the Garden. Her name's Rebecca Sweet. She's a great designer. And I'm more like, I go to the nursery and I go, oh, I love that plant. And Jeff says, where are you going to put it? And I, oh, I'll find somewhere. Rebecca is more like, I need this in that corner to give that color and that form. Um, I'm just a, I'm just a crazed gardener that goes to the garden store and comes back with too much. And if I can quote a Tennessee woman, I met a few years ago when I was speaking at their garden show, she said to me about her house too much is not enough. And I feel that way about my garden. Too much is not enough. I think there's a grateful dead song like that. Too much is like my husband used to have a t-shirt that was like too much is just (laughs) enough or too much is never. I don't know. Uh, What was her blog's name again? Harmony in the garden. Harmony in the garden. She's her name is Rebecca sweet. She's just wonderful. She's quite a good designer. And I knew her when she was very young. When I had my herb and garden store in Cambria, California, she worked across the street and would come in to my garden and just sit and get peace from it. And she said she actually started her contractions <laughs> for her the birth of her daughter, Emily, in my garden in Cambria. Oh Thank God we didn't de- deliver the baby in the garden. <laughs> She's a great designer. That would be like a like interesting personality of a baby that grew up that was born in a garden that was born in a garden i'm sure there have been a few believe me or in at least i know there have been plenty born in fields cotton fields and things like that so but that sounds like a bruce springsteen so i'm born in the garden (laughs) well sharon how about something that didn't work so well this year was there something that didn't go the way you thought it was gonna (laughs) well i i had that this big this plague of uh, ground squirrels which are like um, prairie dogs in a way they're they're not at all like tree squirrels and they loved everything i planted in my low containers i had to end up putting chicken wire and i went to uh oh man they were eating everything it was it was horrifying i'd I'd plant something and next morning i'd get up and every single thing would be gone because they got up a little earlier than i did so i went to i hate that I know I went to the dollar store and I bought all these um, food cover, you know, what you put on a picnic table when it's, when you're doing a picnic and I bought 20 of those and I used those to protect things and they worked. And also the cages that Jeff built for me, but I'm, I have to be honest with you. My problem this year was not something that wasn't doing well. It was, how do I control this? I mean, I had 50 feet of grapes that were producing and I picked hundreds of pounds of grapes. And so my problem wasn't what can I get to grow? Why won't this grow? It was, I got to keep the ground squirrels away from everything. And I have to, um, 
we're very careful about water here. I'm sure you are where you are too. Um, Jeff hooked up my bathtub water to be gray water for fruit trees and that's worked great. And, um, Oh, that, that's something I want to recommend, a book called Harvesting Rainwater. It's just such a great book with so many hints about the way you can capture water and reuse it in your garden. And just seeing that it was, I think he's from Arizona, the guy who wrote it. And just seeing how much life he brought to the Tucson area garden that was flat desert. And then when he started capturing rainwater and gray water, it's amazing. So I will say honestly that I didn't have trouble growing anything. I had only trouble with the ground squirrels. So, and keeping things under control. <laughs> and believe me, I don't like to prune. I, I'm just, I just feel like I'm destroying worlds because so many different insects live on plants in, in different parts of plants. And so my husband sends me in the house and he does pruning. And then I come out and I shriek. And the neighbors think that he's doing something horrible, but uh, you know, I just don't like to prune. So I don't like to thin for that same reason. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, you look down and you think, Oh my gosh, I think I just got rid of some monarch eggs or was that wasn't a pest that was, you know, an aphid lion or, you know, there's just so many, so many things going on. Every inch of a garden is a world into itself and I'm very, I'm very careful about that. I'm very careful about where I walk. And that's part of the reason I don't use any, any kind of poisons, any pesticides. I do do the deterrence that I, the deterrence that I have in trial and error. And I do capture things like slugs and snails and um, put them in soapy water and then feed them to my worms. Everything goes in the worm bin, but um, you know, so I'm just learning. I'm like you. I'm learning every day. <laughs> I just have a few years on you. Well, I was laughing when you said there's no such thing as a black thumb because I definitely had a brown thumb when I started my podcast, but it has definitely turned green. Like I talk a lot about, I feel like I could feed my classroom full of kids, like push came to shove and I was responsible for it. I don't want to. <laughs> Well, but if I had to, like I've learned enough and I've spent more time in my garden. I'm curious yes. about like, I went out in the garden. So I was having a problem with caterpillars on my kale and I was talking to this one guest and she's like, well, have you looked? And like, it never even occurred to me to look under the leaves of the kale and see if anything yeah. was there. And also she was like, go out in the morning. And I realized that I don't really ever go to the garden in the morning because oh, I love that time for some reason, just I'm usually working. And I, my husband, I kind of like, he, he has this thing I call the mini farm, which is like where he grows most of our food. And then uh -huh. I'm taking over more of the gardens that surround the house that are more uh -huh. the herbs and the flowers and the things. And, um, I put my kale there this year. So it'd be closer. And so anyway, he waters in the morning and then I water in the evening. So I like realized I hadn't been going out in the garden, but I'm thinking I like your go out in their pajamas idea oh, yes. in the morning, at oh. least to look around. So I kind of have more of a plan for when I'm out there in the evening, but. Well, but um, you have to be prepared for something. And that is that you will never again be able to wear your pajamas two nights in a row because it'll look, they'll look like heck by the time you come in they'll be dirty and stained and everything. And, and, you know, I like what you said about looking, going out and looking at another time now, but 
for instance, last night, Jeff and I went out with the grapefruits because I use them as traps for hollow grapefruit. You know, we've already eaten the fruit out of it. And I turn them upside down in areas where I have slugs. And in the morning, I go out and I scrape all the slugs into soapy water. So we were we go out at night and check under kale leaves, under um, you know my butter my butter leaf lettuce, my mixed mescaline, things like that. Uh, because at night a lot of things are busy gnawing away at your garden. So, so uh, don't just go out in the morning. Don't just go out in the evening go out in at night. I have a headlamp and I have flat flashlights and, and I'll check things out. And you also learn that something like a sunflower is such an incredible feeder of beneficial insects. Cause you go out at night and you'll see there's just so much life on a blooming sunflower, you know, on all the rays. Um, it, it, it's just a learning experience when you go out at night, you'll, you'll see the moths, the good, beautiful moths and, Oh, it's amazing. And you'll find a few critters that are doing damage too, that you can just hand pick or, but don't ever just spray off a plant without first examining it and making sure, for instance, this year um, when I was out working, there was a knob on one of my, um, on my, one of my Asclepius fasciculatus. It was a native Asclepius that I planted for, for my monarchs and I started to pick this off and then I thought, no, wait a minute. No, that's, that's the pupa of a ladybug, ladybird beetle. And so I was able to focus in on that for the next few days and watch it as it developed into a ladybird beetle and hatched. So you have a lot of learning to do when you go out in your garden, both day and night, and you just have to use caution and you have to be gentle. And, you know, I had, I think some of the best in the best and wisest words ever spoken to me were by a little boy who I wrote a book called Hollyhock Days. And he wrote to me and said, is it okay if we save a spot for the wild things? And so I always have a wild area for the wild things. And it's a good lesson. You know, we, we need to leave space for the wild things too. We can't just go out and just wipe everything out without thinking about the consequences. And there are usually consequences. So. And also, you know, those cabbage loopers, boy, the nuthatches and the chickadees love them. I I can't remember how many hundreds I watched a chickadee take to her nest when she had young ones, but um, more than more than a hundred. I actually wrote, I kept a picket fence of my, my studio was hanging out over our garden in Cambria and I could actually watch what the chickadee was picking and eating. So there are, there, you know, there are good things that come from bad things too. Awesome. I love all of that. Um, yeah, the kale, the interesting thing to me was that she knew that the kale bugs would be on there in the morning and they wouldn't be like at night. They're not there. When I went and harvested it, all I saw were the holes. I was like, uh-huh. no, I don't think there's anything eating it like that. I think it's bugs. And she's like, I bet it's a caterpillar. And she's like, go out in the <laughs> coffee and, with your coffee. She was so right. And, yep. um, and that's what it was. And then, uh, I didn't really do anything about them. <laughs> I just, I just give those leaves to the chickens or well, I just right. ate them cause they weren't on there by the time I had ate, by the time, you know, like I said, when I harvested in the evening, they weren't there anymore. Right. Anyway, so, right. Well, I, you know, I give tomato plants to the hornworms because if you, uh, do any delving around in the garden, you find that a hornworm turns into the mo- one of the most beautiful garden creatures of 
sphinx moth. You probably have Hylaeus lineata in your area. It's a pink line sphinx moth. And they can pollinate uh, in seven minutes. They can pollinate 200 long-tubed flowers. So they're one of the most important pollinators in the garden. So think about uh, covering one plant and giving it to the sphinx moths, you know, whether it's a Nicotiana or a tomato, cover it with cheesecloth, they'll defoliate it really. And then they drop to the ground and they have these little purses that are their cocoon. I think it's kind of like a keratin that they're made out of and they pupate in the soil. And then they come out as these beautiful hummingbird moths that just touch your soul. They're so gorgeous. So, you know, what you did is what I do too. Save a little bit for the critters. Well, Sharon, we're at the part of the show I call getting to the root of things, which is, you know, kind of like a lightning round. It's supposed to be quick questions. It kind of depends on how long we go. But anyway, do you have an activity that's like kind of force yourself to do like a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Like you said, thinning plants. I feel like a murderer when I do it, you know, and I overseed. So yeah, thinning plants is really hard for me. It kind of breaks my heart. And I try, you know, if you look in trial and error, you see how I do the pencil planting. uh, I did see those tips. Yeah. So I try to use that always and not just scatter gazillion seeds in a, in a garden bed, but thinning is just really hard on me. I find the best thing for putting tiny seeds like that in the ground is to get the grandkids out there. <laughs> Their hands work really good. I always say I'm going to make the seed tape and I liked you talked about making the seed tape with the toilet yes. paper instead of, yes. I had seen it with newspaper. Um, but I've yet to do it. One of these oh, years, what I need fun. to do is do it in the winter when the seeds like come instead of being like, I'm going to do it the night before I go out there. Well, you know, I use, um, you get spices and things at the grocery store and they have those good, those good jars with the holes in them. And I, and I'll mix those with um, soil. Uh, I mean, I'll put soil in them and mix my seeds in there and let the kids shake them out. I worked a lot with school gardens and they use, a lot of school gardens use my book, Root Shoots, and um, teaching the kids how to do that. They love that shaking that out over the garden. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a good thing to do with children. Of course, everything's good to do with children in the garden. <laughs> That's good for me too, though, because I hate planting things in a line. I like to just broadcast stuff. Yeah, I wrote a poem once. Long straight rows are such a bore. Gardens shouldn't be a chore. It's true. They should be fun. They need to be fun. So on the flip side, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden? I love to rake. I love raking. I love Um, We have decomposed granite pathways between beds. And I don't know, it just makes me feel like the world is right. I turn around and I look and there are these beautiful rake marks. And it's like, there's one part of my life that's sort of neat, tidy. And and then I have a little bit of control over and it's, it's raking the paths. That makes me feel really good. I am 90% sure you are the first person to say that, but that's awesome. It kind of reminds me like I, I'm, I'm not like that either. Like I don't like things all but organized, but I do love cleaning the blackboard. And when you said that, it reminded me yeah. of cleaning the backboard. How about what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? To be patient, 
to be patient because like your iris, they're patiently sitting there and, and, you know, getting acquainted with their new home ground. It's hard to, you know, some things take a long time to germinate like gourds. I'll give you an example. I had a wonderful teaching garden at my, at my shop in Cambria. It was, it was actually featured in a lot of magazines and it was a forerunner. It was in the early nineties. And I planted a wall of gourds, gourd seeds. And I waited for probably six weeks and nothing happened. So I planted more. And when it really got warm, <laughs> I had a zillion gourds coming up. And so that was the garden slapping me on my hand and saying, be patient, love joy, because I had so many gourds. But the neat thing was that I got to have kids from the local grammar school and they came and they harvested those gourds and they could take them back to the grammar school. And they loved that. So be patient or you may plant too many gourd seeds. <laughs> What's your favorite tool if you had to move or is there something you take back and forth from California to Maine every time? Yeah, like- actually I have two of them. So one of them is in Maine still. I have a big, uh, bigger than a tablespoon. It was my grandmother's and um, I use that for gardening and containers. I have to say that my spoon... <laughs> For if you ask Jeff, he'd say his shredder grinder, you know, his seven house horsepower shredder grinder that makes everything into great mulch. But for me, it's my my grandmother's spoon. I love it. It's really important to me. I can see where Jeff's coming from, but yeah, things that <laughs> things that are family, yeah, like family or air like tools and stuff. Uh, I was going to ask you about um, like I am not a container gardener. Like, I feel like container gardeners, they take way more attention because they they run out of water. Like, I am definitely mm-hmm. guilty. Like, Mike is always on me. You need to water more. You need to water more. You need to water more. So that's, like, one of my – and we live in a dry area where you need to water. Like, what what are, like, some – things I could do to become more of a container gardener or to embrace that. Like what's a good container garden tip? Well, first of all, when you do container gardening, you become very intimate with what's growing in the containers because they're, they're segregated in there. And so um, you actually become really close friends with them. Some people now use some kind of, I guess it's a silica or something, silicone that absorbs water. Uh, I don't like using things like that, you know, that absorbs and holds water, but they've been doing some kind of, um, and you might be able to do this. They've been doing different tests with wool fleece from meat lambs. They've been using the wool, mixing it in with potting soil and it holds the moisture and slowly releases it. Um, so you, you know, you're going to have to spend time with your containers. I have quite a few small containers, but I have them mostly massed together. And then I have this wonderful water that lets out a little thin stream, um, that goes to each one. And I keep about, I don't think I'm, I'd have to look at Jeff if I say this, I have about 15 old watering cans around the garden that I keep filled with water to the water passes the chlorine through so I don't give them bad water. I have those next to my big contain, my clumps of containers. And um, it, it, again, it's just that morning ritual of going out and making sure everything is fine. And 
then your husband won't have to yell at you. You'll, you'll say, I already know. I just watered it. And I don't like to make plants wait all day long to be watered at night. I think they need to have water to fortify them for a hot day. So I'm a morning water and I'm not so much a, an evening water. And I've all, I have to say, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> I started the diatribe about plants, but um, so what was the question? <laughs> I love the wool um, thing. I'm going to look into that. It was that I struggled with watering things. Oh, and like okay. I feel like containers dry out so much and I need to give them so well, much more attention because they're like, I already struggle to water things as it is. And I just feel like well, containers you cluster just them. make it harder. No, containers just magnify the pleasure of a garden. They You cluster them together or you have them as focal points in the garden. And, and what Jeff has done on, we have a small courtyard garden that I used to call their herb courtyard. And now I call it the citrus courtyard because I have tangerines and tangelos and Meyer lemon, um, Mexican lime and some other things in there. And he add he put drip line into them so three times a week the drip line goes right into the soil because you know fruit trees need quite a bit of water so and i don't buy clothes usually my clothing is goes toward the water bill we don't waste a drop of water we use vegetable water we use pasta water which i never salt we used every bit of water that's generated in the kitchen goes back out to the garden or the from the from the bathtub, you know, the shower and bathtub. So yes, it takes water, but if you have a, a mass of small ones together, or a couple of focal points, you'll go right to them. It won't be you're going to be searching all over for your geranium that you had in the corner. You'll have them all together in a in your own way. And did you say you keep watering cans around different places or water oh containers? Gosh. Well, I, I say keep, watering cans. I use watering cans. I like that idea. And I instead um, of just having one watering can. Oh no 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 no! Bunches uh-huh. of watering cans. So when I, I like that. The watering cans you see in both trowel and air and root shoots, buckets and boots, and blessing of toads—they're all drawings from my garden. And um, I do have to admit, I collect old watering cans too. So um, I, I like the water sort of has to aerate uh, or it airs out during the night because we have chlorinated water here. They, I think they chlorinated on Tuesday at the, at the plant. So I, I don't water things on Tuesday or Wednesday without letting That's them sit overnight. And if you read old literature about gardening, and I love that, it's kind of my forte, one of my favorite books is called My Friend, The Garden by Fernand Le Ken. It was written in France in the 40s. And they talk about how your garden loves big barrels, uh, half barrels of water that sits out and is warm. So I have big coal hods and, and galvanized buckets of water that sits out. And my plants do seem to love those warm water baths early in the morning. <laughs> But are they even still warm in the morning? Like I find like at the end of the day, the water is warm, but then when, I mean, we're in cold Montana and you're in hot California. Yes. That can make yeah, a difference. Yeah, it, it does. So you, you just choose the time of the day. But my, for instance, my courtyard garden's hot. It's just hot. And then Jeff and I built, we live in a city. We live in a city 
we came from the country and we built, we went to the, um, I think it's called the cloisters in New York. And I fell madly in love yeah. with, the, with the walled gardens there. So we built six foot walls around our entire lot, our entire lot that faced the street. So I can go out in my nightgown and nobody can see me. Thank God. Um, and um, <laughs> <laughs> I keep, you know, the cans and the barrels and everything up close to the wall. It absorbs heat and uh, gives it back to the plants on cold days. So we all have our different methods and our different um, shortcuts or our different remedies wherever we live. And though California has a lot of benefits, it has a lot of negatives too. And, you know, the water would be one of them and heat and drought. And um, so, yeah, you have to do it when it's right for you and when it feels right for the plants. Cool. Well, I think some of those tips will really help me. I hope so. <laughs> sure. What's your favorite recipe to either cook or eat from the garden? Well, I absolutely love working with edible flowers. And um, I grow violas and uh, fuchsias and all of this uh, beautiful palette, color palette of edible flowers, borage and uh, roselle and, you know, you name it, I grow it. And nothing makes me feel better than to go out and to pick my edible flowers, bring them in and wash them and float them in a pie plate so that they stay uh, in good shape during the day. And then I love composing beautiful salads with these tasty, gorgeous, they look like gems. They really do. And people can actually get on you know, my blog and, and look at some of the pictures of those. I haven't blogged for a while, but I do have edible flower recipes. And then I like to make Greek yogurt and do a flower yogurt and um, have, have the, the flowers. I put them into a, a strainer and drip them for about five days. And then I stud them with these incredible, gorgeous edible flowers. and um, I would say that, you know, there are a lot of books out there. Kathy Wilkinson Barish wrote a book on uh, edible flowers, um, and I use that. And then don't ever eat a flower that's been sprayed with anything or that grows on a roadside or you don't know if it's edible because you don't want to eat anything from the nightshade family or tomato flower or something like that. So know your edible flowers. Yeah, know your edible flowers. I just wrote an article for the Master Food Preservers and it showed some of my edible flower projects. And um, so if anybody's interested, they could contact me and I can give them the link. I don't have it here right now, but so it's Master Food Preservers of San Luis Obispo County. And, and I did a lot of photos so people could see what I was talking about. So making cheeses and making yogurt and, and doing edible flower salads and also doing incredible pastas with edible flowers and garlic scapes. Oh, it's just beautiful using those. So, and allium flowers. So, you know, when you have a garden at your fingertips, it's like you have this magical world and it's okay then to go out and try all these different things, especially when you have a good husband like mine who kind of willingly is uh, tasting things. And, and also that you're careful what you harvest. Oh, because you don't want to eat something poisonous? Well, you don't want to eat a potato flower. They're beautiful, but they're, you don't eat them. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, you want. There's a there's an old book called Sturdivant's Guide to Edible Plants, and it's like the master guide of what's edible. And just because something's edible does not necessarily mean it tastes good. I mean, I have flowers that I tuberous begonias are edible, fuchsias are edible, all these different things. Some of them taste good, some of them taste lemony, some, you know. But you don't. Uh, so you have to be your own judge about what you think tastes beautiful. That's a good point. So <laughs> do you have a favorite internet resource to recommend, like where you find yourself surfing on the web? Well, I go to the agricultural colleges for up to the minute information. And I think I mentioned Texas A&M and Cornell and UC Davis, and I'll type in a subject and, and get online. And also I can, I can heartily recommend for various states, the, the site of the master gardeners and the master food preservers, because they are careful, they are thorough, and they're knowledgeable. So get on your own master food preserver or your master gardener site and type in a subject. Maybe you want to type in edible flowers. You'll find a lot of things coming up. And they're invaluable resources, and you can trust them. There are some sites that are pretty weird, and you don't want to go to those for, for help in the garden or for help in cooking. So be careful. <laughs> Great advice. All right. How about a favorite reading material, a book or a magazine or something? Well, I collect and love old books. In fact, if you get on my Instagram account today, you'll see me getting ready for this talk. And I mentioned you on it, Sharon Lovejoy author. And I, I show where I'm sitting uh, with my old book collection. I collect books from the 1700s through the 20th century, and I particularly love the works of Gertrude Jekyll. I love Beverly Nichols. I love uh, Fernand Lequin. I love um, Mirabelle Osler, Penelope Hobhouse. Um, but I want to say that I start my days with John Dryden's um, translation of the book, the Georgics, written about 29 BC by Virgil. And the Georgics are all about agriculture and about growing things, about growing food. And I, you know, I usually take one passage a day and read that. And I truly love it. And I've learned so much from Virgil. And I will have to say that one of my favorite quotes is I wrote it on a, on a slate that I have out in my garden. And that quote is, and let no spot of idle earth be found, but cultivate the genius of the ground. So Virgil taught me to cultivate the genius of the ground. And believe me, <laughs> my ground's brilliant. It's cultivating a lot of genius. Oh my gosh. You are just full of golden seeds. I can't believe you're reading Virgil by back from 29 bc but uh that's awesome you are just such a fascinating person like i feel like oh. i could just talk to you forever but you're probably like jackie when is this ever going to end One fifteen. <laughs> we've been on the phone for an hour so oh, it was wonderful. wonderful my final question is a doozy and then we can tell everybody how to connect with you and about your books and everything but um if there's one change, Sharon, you'd like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Wow. I, you know, I demonstrated during the 60s and I wrote letters to paper companies and I, 
protested, but I thought things were getting better. And uh, I don't want to end on a down note, but I would say that uh, programs for children, for instance, uh, kids, kidsgardening.org is important because they touch children in schools that are really under, you know, underprivileged areas or underserved areas. So kidsgardening.org. Um, and I, um, I would get away from plastics and develop things that are like potato starch and things that break down. Because when I think of the ocean and I read Contiki years ago and in Contiki, he talked about debris in the ocean, but there was hardly anything really. But now plastic debris the size of the state of Texas. My husband and I just drove through Texas when we were driving back from Maine and it took us two and a half days. And the idea that our planet is infinite is wrong. And I just hope that scientists will come up with ways to re-envision a planet without plastic. So that's, that's my thing. That and kids gardening, uh, two things. And when I say kids gardening, it's because it makes them mentally healthy. It makes them physically healthy. It teaches them to be self-reliant. It teaches them about the circle of life and interconnectedness of life. So both of those are really important to me. And I always worry about wildlife, always. I love that. I just sent my mom, uh, Jane Fonda came out with a new book and I was asking my mom, how it was and she's like man you wouldn't believe the plastic in the oceans i know i it's heartbreaking and we walk the beach all the time and now we're finding smaller and smaller particles of plastic and i know that the dolphins and the whales they're going through krill beds and they're they're ingesting this it's becoming part of their bodies and it's hard you know but we can't leave on a negative note we have to know that we humans have been able to create and and save and heal things through the ages. And we have to do that now. We have to be healers and creators. And uh, that's the most important thing. And the other thing is there is a huge farm to school movement. And gar- I mean, yes, there's yes. the number of school gardens, I think, that have been created since I started my podcast, even five years ago, is just, you know, exponential. Like, definitely, they are becoming more, but... Um, but what you find, Jeff, uh, I was invited to speak in Sweden in, I think it was 1990. Well, it was after my book, one of my books had come out, Sunflower Houses, maybe. And um, it was school gardens, uh, the outdoor schools, they called them in Sweden, and they were quite advanced. And so we were able to also travel around the United States and help teachers and, and do, do things for school gardens. And that's really part of the reason I wrote Root Shoots, Buckets, and Boots. I thought it was really important because I saw that what happened with kids when they grew their own food, they ate vegetables they hated. And when they also sold them at a farm stand, then they could see that they could actually not only sustain themselves, but also make a living or close to it, or make money by selling food. So, oh, that was in 1995 that we went and worked in Sweden. So, you know, it's it's really gained in the years since I started writing about children's gardening, uh, but it needs to gain even more. And I appreciate what you do with children and what you do with your podcast too. <laughs> Thank you. Well, go ahead and tell listeners how to connect with you, your website and uh, your Instagram, I guess. And okay. I'm on Instagram. I'm just Sharon Lovejoy author. 
and I post every day and I've been posting about Jeff's greenhouse that he built me out of recycled and upcycled things. It's darling and it's going to keep the birds and the squirrels from eating my seedlings. It's just wonderful. Um, I'm Sharon at SharonLoveJoy.com. If anybody wants to write to me, I love, I get so many letters and uh, get letters from children too. It's wonderful. And I have, I have a website SharonLoveJoy.com and I have a blog and I can't even remember what it's called. I haven't written in it for a couple of years, but it's just filled with all things about edible uh, gardening and what to grow in your garden. And I don't know, Jeff, do you know the name of my blog? I don't remember it. It might be sunflower houses and little, I don't know. Anyhow, just look up Sharon Lovejoy. You'll find it. And uh, I love connecting with people and I, and I have a Facebook page, Sharon Lovejoy. And then I have Sharon Lovejoy home gardens books. And I, I pretty much post to that every day. And Jeff and I have um, uh, a thing, a place called comfort found. And that's our, that's our business in Maine It's literary lodging. It's uh, a wonderful place to go if you love to read books. So we have a comfortfound.com on, uh, on the, on Facebook and it, you know, we just, we're very busy. We really do this. So uh, I have a lot of sites and a lot of information to share with people. I think your blog is Sharon Lovejoy dot Thank with the you. Pretty bottles on the, on the little green Island. Oh yeah. That's when I, thank you for doing that. For right from at. sunflower house and the little green Island. Yes. Thank you. Well, you need a, there's no link on your website to your blog. There's no I link on my that. website to my blog. Okay. Well, I bet you by the time we hang up, I bet anything that Jeff will go in and provide a link. It's just that I kind of got overwhelmed by writing books. I wrote a book called running out of night. It's a, uh, it's pre-civil war and it's about friendship between a black girl and a white girl and they escape some horrible situations and so i've been i spend a lot of most of my time gardening and writing and cooking and with my grandchildren and speaking and doing uh appearances not obviously this year just doing zoom things but um i i just got overloaded with the blog too the blog would take me you know, a day, you know that, you know how I am nodding my head. (laughs) I know. And I tell my podcast transcript guy how much I love him like profusely. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you. He doesn't, I'm just like, you have, I call him the man who gave me my weekends back. Like (laughs) how much time I spent doing that. It's just enormous. And when I could look at that, yes, I could reach hundreds, but uh, I like, being on Instagram and Facebook, especially, you know, I, I get letters from thousands of people. I just don't want them to message me because I'm finding all these messages from two years ago. Will you be in an article for the Chicago times? And it was, you know, two years ago, they wrote me because I don't check my messages, but. And cause um, I think Instagram is a hard place to find your message. At least it's getting a little better, but it used to be to me, I could never even find how to send a message <laughs> on Instagram or where the message button. I don't know. Well, I I'm I I have a love hate relationship with Instagram. I'm much more Facebook oriented, but but I love photos. So and I love um, posting photos and sharing and having an interaction with people. And I found that they do it on Instagram too. They do. But I do I do love Facebook. It's pretty wonderful. Um, 
Jeff is saying, Sharon Lovejoy blogspot.com. She beat you to it, dear. Oh. Jackie did. <laughs> but remind him, there's no link on the, the But she site. said, there's no link. Okay. Well, we'll take care of that, Jackie. Thank you for taking me to task. <laughs> there's no link to your Instagram either. No link to my Instagram either? I didn't really? see one. Okay. Well, visit me on Sharon Lovejoy Author, and I just mentioned you on uh, on my Instagram account. Aww. Well, thank you so much. You have a wonderful day and thanks Jeff, oh, you for all too. his great, yeah, um, he's great emails and sending me pictures and your bio and everything and links and just, he made it super easy. And so, Oh, I'm glad. Thanks for what you do. Probably be out the first or second week in January and I will send you the link. All right. And then I'll, and I'll post it then to the Jackie. Thank you. I was you. just about Talk- to put a review on Amazon because listeners, you know what I'm going to say? Don't forget when you get her books, give them a review on Amazon. You know, that's important. Other people read them. Yeah, that's important. Um, You know, and trial and error and root shoots and sunflower houses and granny, Camp Granny, they keep, uh, you know, they keep chugging along. I mean, they're not new, but they are filled with information that doesn't really get old. So I appreciate 700 organic remedies, shortcuts, and tips. I tell you, listeners are going to love travel and error. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you so much. You guys have a (laughs) wonderful day. You too. Take care. Hey, listeners. Have you been to growers.co, James Fortier's newest venture? He's got an amazing magazine featuring the inspiring farmers who have followed in his footsteps, taken his classes, put his practices into work that he's highlighting in a great printed magazine. He's got tools that he's designed that he's developed from um, looking at tools around the world while he did his book tour that just he uses on his farm. I mean, it's amazing the information on his website. You can learn about how to use these tools. They're totally affordable. I'm telling you the Canadian exchange is great right now. Um, and farmware that's stylish, it's comfortable, but most of all, it's practical for working in the garden. I know one of my biggest barriers was garden shoes. He's got boots, coats, Um, And you definitely want to get a small scale farmers are changing the world t-shirt either for yourself, get one for your favorite CSA or farmer market vendor. It'll make them feel good. It'll make you feel good and support growers.co. That man has changed our world for the better. He's been so generous with his time, his energy and um, deserving of uh, uh, your shopping dollars. So growers.co. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.